0: I'm Richard Ron. I'm a senior fellow here at the Cato Institute. For those of you who are tweeting, our uh, it's the tweet is Cato on Money. And I assume that'll make sense to you who tweet, and those of you don't, it's irrelevant. <laughs> well, you had a wonderful first panel of what's wrong. And this panel is going to concentrate more on what are some of the alternatives. And we have a stellar group here. I am. Uh, they're going to actually make their presentations in the order that you see in your uh, desk here. First, our first presenter is an old friend of mine, Larry White, who now teaches at George Mason University. Larry has written many books on money, and uh, many art many articles, and uh, we, uh, he always comes up with something new and interesting. To my immediate right, our second speaker, Richard Timberlake, I think everybody in this room has been directly or indirectly influenced by the writings and talks that Dick Timberlake has given over the years. Uh, it's amazing. Here he was, a pilot in World War II, trying to protect his country. And here he is today, still working on protecting his country through his efforts on the monetary side. And that's an amazing record. And uh, I think probably very few of us will have this length of career and profound career. And finally, we have Scott Sumner, who was a professor at Bentley University and also a prolific author on money, and he's going to lay out uh, his solution. But to begin with, let's start off with um, Larry White.
1: Larry. Right.
2: The uh, title of our panel is uh, Alternatives to Discretionary Government Fiat Money. And the usual way to approach that question is to think about non-discretionary ways to control the quantity of government fiat money. Um, We've already heard some suggestions today and we'll hear more later. Uh, the Fed's open market desk could be given a single mandate. It could be given an explicit rule or a little more uh, out of the box, we could move determination of the quantity of fiat money from the Open Market Committee to a prediction market. Uh, Scott Sumner and Kevin Dowd, who are here, have talked about that. Alternatively, we can think about non-fiat regimes, redefining the dollar in terms of gold or a broader commodity mon- uh, bundle. I think Lou Lerman will have something to say about that. I've written about that. Uh, Warren Coates has talked about broad commodity bundles. Or we could actually try to redeem all the Federal Reserve liabilities for some new commodity standard and take it out of business entirely. Um, But all these approaches assume that there's going to be one monetary regime, and so the key to monetary reform is to uh, transform the existing regime into something else. What I want to talk about today is a different approach, which is to think about ways other monetary systems could operate in parallel with the uh, standard monetary system, perhaps gradually displacing it uh, if conditions warrant And to think about that, we need to think about what the alternative monetary systems are that are already available uh, or that have recently become available through technological change and why they're not already more popular. So what I'm going to talk about in particular is the troubling suppression of some alternative monies that indicate uh, what the legal requirements for reform would be uh, because there are legal obstacles now blocking monetary innovation. Uh, Now, since we're here in the F.A. Hayek Auditorium, uh, I will begin with a reading from uh, F.A. Hayek's Choice in Currency. Uh, In that monograph, Hayek proposed an an end to legal barriers that block competition uh, and asked, why should we not let people choose freely what money they want to use? Individuals ought to have the right to decide whether they want to buy or sell francs, pounds, dollars, D marks or ounces of gold. This was during the 70s, so all those currencies existed. Uh, he went, went on to argue that uh, the government's claim to a monopoly over money uh, is wholly harmful. And so governments should instead not, should bind themselves not to place any restrictions on the free use within their territories of one another's or any other currencies, including their purchase and sale at any price the parties decide on, or their use used as accounting units in which to keep books, and here endeth our reading. Um, <laughs> I think Hayek's anti-monopoly message bears re-emphasizing today when there are new alternatives uh, available, but troublingly, the U.S. government seems to be set about, uh, setting about stamping them out. Uh, I thank the uh, member of the audience who asked about Bitcoin and uh, the use of anti-money laundering laws to suppress alternative payment media. And I'm going to talk about two cases in which that has already happened. Uh, In particular, the case of uh, the Liberty Dollar and the case of Eagle. Well, Liberty Dollar was suppressed on other grounds than money laundering. But um, Two things I'm not going to talk about, but which somebody should talk about, which bear further investigation, is what are the legal obstacles to using Foreign fiat monies, uh, either in currency form or in bank account balance form. Why aren't there more euro-denominated bank accounts in the U.S.? Um, and I'm not going to talk about Bitcoin, except by sort of extension to what i was saying about. Uh, I'll be saying about the Liberty Dollar and Eagle. Um, but we need more information about the restrictions uh, on use in the United States of, of foreign currencies. Uh, now, I say the federal government has been acting as though it resents these challenges from operations like the Liberty Dollar and e-gold uh, to its monopoly of basic money in the United States, resents them enough to legally impede them. Now, you may think I'm sort of exaggerating that that has nothing to do with the actions they've taken. But if you think what I'm saying is a stretch, uh, you haven't been reading the indictments, <laughs> because the indictments make it clear that that's part of the concern uh, of the authorities. Of course, if, uh, I agree with Hayek that if we care about the welfare of ordinary citizens and their role as money users, uh, we should allow the market for money to be openly competitive, for monetary standards to be o- openly competitive. There shouldn't be a sheltered state monopoly. Okay, let me say a little about the story of the Liberty Dollar. Uh, the, Entrepreneur behind the Liberty Dollar, Bernard von Notthaus, uh, attended the Cato Monetary Conference a few years ago and uh, was recognized in the audience. Uh, Basically, what his outfit, uh, which went under the acronym NORFED, uh, did was to issue one-ounce silver pieces, they had to call them, because there's a law against issuing your own coins, uh, which were called Liberty Dollars and had a face value denominated in dollars. And the, the economics of having a certain weight of silver also denominated in a fixed number of dollars uh, is interesting, but I don't have time to go into that. I've, I've written about that elsewhere. And Kevin Dowd has a recent paper in which he talks about the Liberty Dollar case in more detail. And I should say that he also talks about e-gold, so i am sort of been inspired by his piece, although my take is slightly different on some issues. <laughs> um, it was pretty clear in the publicity for the Liberty Dollar, right? So the Liberty Dollar is a, is a one-ounce silver piece. Initially, they were stamped $10 when the going price for a silver round was about half that. When the price of silver rose to $10, the one-ounce Liberty Dollar was re-denominated $20. And this was all pre-programmed. It wasn't sort of ad hoc. Um, so it was a currency that was inflation-proof in the sense that its value would rise when the price of silver rose, its value in U.S. dollars would rise. Um, it was pretty clear that the intention here was to offer a new kind of currency, something to compete with the Federal Reserve's fiat money. That's why they called it a currency. Um, uh, they had quotes on their website from federal officials saying, well, this all looks perfectly legal to us. Uh, But in September 2006, the U.S. Mint uh, made declarations to the contrary. They issued a press release saying that the Liberty Dollar medallions are specifically marketed to be used as current money in order to limit reliance on and to compete with the circulating coinage of the United States. Consequently, prosecutors with the United States Department of Justice have concluded that the use of Norfed's Liberty Dollar medallions violates 18 U.S. Code 486, and is a crime. Consequently, because they're trying to compete with the U.S. government, they're committing a crime. Um, The language of the statute in question doesn't actually say that. (laughs) But it does, does say that whoever, except as authorized by law, makes or utters or passes or attempts to utter or pass any coins of gold or silver or other metal or alloys of metal intended for use as current money, whether in resemblance of coins of the United States or of foreign countries, or of original design, shall be fined under this title or imprisoned, not more than five years or both. So there is a law on the books that outlaws minting your own coins for use as circulating currency. And why is that? Well, it goes back to the Civil War where the Union government was trying to bolster the circulation of greenbacks and their own paper fractional notes. So this act was intended to outlaw the continued circulation of gold coins that had been produced by private mints during the California gold rush and were still in circulation, and to outlaw uh, private tokens. Now, uh, in November 2007, the FBI raided Liberty Dollar uh, headquarters and in 2009, issued indictments uh, against von Nothaus. And predictably, he was charged with violating the statute against uttering pieces of metal intended to circulate as currency. More surprisingly, he was indicted on counterfeiting statutes, even though the design of the Liberty Dollar was, uh, it's safe to say, different from that of any federally produced coin. Especially given that it said it was silver on it, (laughs) where which no federal coin was saying at the time. Um, He was convicted in March 2011, and he's still awaiting sentencing. I got an email update yesterday (laughs) from the uh, Liberty Dollar Organization, and still awaiting sentencing more than two and a half years later. But the policy lesson is that if we're going to open up the Federal Reserve dollar to free currency competition. We need to repeal this Civil War Act against uh, issuing private currency, and we need to make it clear that the law against counterfeiting doesn't apply to pieces of original design that don't uh, sort of use any trademarked symbols of the U.S. Mint. They shouldn't be considered counterfeit copies just because they have a liberty head on them or something like that. let me turn to EGold. EGold was a successful for-profit service that offered transferable gold-denominated accounts, and it worked in tandem with a sister service called Gold and Silver Reserve, which would sell E-Gold in exchange for dollars or euros or other currencies. So if you wanted to uh, take advantage of E-Gold, you would open an account on their website, you would then go to Gold and Silver Reserve and buy E-Gold units. Which would be placed in your account, now your account is funded, and now you can make transfers to other eGold account holders, and anytime you like, you can cash out by selling your gold eGold units back to gold and silver uh, reserve, or there were other payment processors that could also sell you eGold um, contrary to some things that have been said about it, the system was not anonymous and it did have some identity controls, although when the uh, when the force of the law came down uh the pr- proprietor uh I guess I haven't mentioned his name his name is Doug- Douglas Jackson he was a physician in Florida who came up with this idea he did acknowledge that okay the uh the controls on identity are not up to federal standards <laughs> uh the know your customer rules Uh, I said eGold was successful. The number of customers began to grow in about 2000, 2001, and one of the symptoms of that was that other firms began copying the model. So we got eDinar, which still exists, uh, eBullion, goldmoney.com, 3P Pay, Crown Gold, Pecunix, and iGolder. At one point, a, a writer in Wired Magazine noted that e-gold in volume of payments processed was second only to PayPal in the online payments industry. Mm. And what was the attraction? You could make remittances easily. It allowed wider payment access to people who were unbanked. Uh, for merchants, it had no chargeback risk, unlike credit cards. And the fees for payment processing were lower than those of credit cards. So to the customer, it was both a medium of exchange and it was a way to own gold. So it was a way to own a medium of exchange that couldn't be debased uh, by the printing press. But the upward trajectory ended when e-gold was raided by the FBI and Secret Service agents in December 2005. And the charge was uh, operating a payment system without the requisite money-transmitting licenses and conducting money laundering. Uh, e based on her bad legal advice, thought that it could operate its service without a money-transmitting license because what it was transmitting was gold and not money. Some of you may remember that Ron Paul pointedly asked, Ben Bernanke, is gold money? And Bernanke said no. It turns out uh, you can't rely on that legal counsel from Ben Bernanke (laughs) if you're up against the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. Uh, So Douglas Jackson and two... Co-owners were indicted for money laundering, one count of money laundering, three counts of unlicensed money transmitting, and the, this, the thrust of the uh, money laundering laws are that you have to know your customer. It's not just that you don't have a license, but to keep your license, you have to know your customer, uh, have all kinds of identity controls. So, skipping to my conclusion, I have inter- I've read through the transcripts of the... Eagle uh, hearings, legal hearings, mm. uh, they, Douglas Jackson ended up agreeing to a plea bargain after a judge threw out the motion to dismiss the case on the grounds that what they were doing wasn't money transmitting. She said, well, it looks like money transmitting to me. Um, but here's one thing the judge said, which is kind of chilling. I have no doubt that Dr. Jackson has respect for law. He wanted to set up a currency system that avoided government oversight. That's clear what he wanted to do. He thought he could do that. Turns out he couldn't. Well, seems to me he, there should be a way of doing that. <laughs> uh, after the uh, plea bargain, Jackson tried to turn e-gold into a licensed money transmitter, but catch 22. If you're a convicted felon, <laughs> you can't get a license to be a money transmitter. So the policy lesson here is that the anti-money laundering laws and money-transmitting licensure requirements and especially the discretion given to the federal authorities who uh, enforce these are serious entry barriers to any domestic gold based online payment system to the point of being completely prohibitive. All the domestically based competitors to eGold shut down after they saw what happened to eGold. There are still a few overseas, but the U.S. claims authority to regulate those as long as they deal with any U.S. customers. Um, to be frank, I mean, this is part of a surveillance state apparatus. This is prior restraint on people's liberty to transfer money, uh, even without any evidence that they've committed a crime or even before any crime has been detected. So we can object to them on human rights grounds. And there's a, there's a human rights drama taking place right now where the ability of Somali expatriates to transmit money back to the people at home is being challenged uh, by regulatory authorities in Great Britain. And if they stop the remittances, people will starve. Um, so I think we need to do a comprehensive cost-benefit study of the anti-money laundering and uh, money-transmitting licensing requirements. And it's not clear to me that this kind of prior restraint is worth the cost, worth the compliance costs, and worth the discouraging of completely legal, transa- innocent and legal transactions. So... The barriers to currency competition are not just the legal tender laws, not just uh, capital gains taxes, not just the statutes banning private coinage, but also the way in which any money laundering it and uh, know your customer rules have been enforced. And this will be important as FinCEN moves against Bitcoin. Uh, Sorry, Bitcoin. Thank you.
0: Larry, right, thank you very much. I must confess, I was an advisor to Doug Jackson when he was first setting it up. I was an economic advisor. I had some experience in uh, commodities and commodity-based money. And, but I had warned him on the legal side that he'd get himself in trouble by calling it money. And he often referred to it as money, both orally in some of his writings. And I knew that was a ro- line which, if once crossed, they would go after him. Um, And what Larry just said about this tyranny, there is a uh, Treasury regulation now, uh, FATCA, uh, Foreign Accounts Tax Compliance Act, which will make virtually every financial institution in the world having to comply with um, U.S. regulations. And basically it forces every financial institution or financial company, whether or not you're even defined as a bank or normally as a financial company, to divulge all your customers, particularly if they're U.S. citizens. I don't have time to get into the complexity of it today. Hopefully, uh, Mary will write a lot more about it at the Wall Street Journal, but it's really dangerous. It's coming into effect this next year and it will have devastating consequences. um, I'm gonna take one minute as as the moderator here at Prerogative. I had suggested a few times that one thing you might try in terms of money would be bullets because, you know, they're they're standardized. You know, these 22s are like eight, 10 cents a round. And then you got the big sniper rounds from the 50, mil, uh, 50 caliber, and uh, they go for about five bucks a round. And you could have this alternative money, but I've been afraid, afraid to write it up because <laughs> then I'm afraid then I can just see our government coming and seizing people's ammunition and guns on the basis of anti-money laundering. <laughs> I mean, if you, look at, if you look at the decisions that he, Larry just talked about, and Dick here has just done, our next speaker has done, uh, a really review of all the Supreme Court um, decisions concerning money, an and expert here, and how this has been Extended and extended and extended. This is the growth of government. But now, our great constitutional money scholar, Dick Timberlake. Thank
3: you. Thank you, Richard. Um, I'm going to speak on clearinghouse currency, which was the precursor of, of the Federal Reserve System. I want to make a comment or two, though, about uh, uh, Doug Jackson and Bernard von Nothouse and their attempts to provide uh, uh, alternative monies. I talked, I, both of them are good friends of mine, too. And uh, when I heard what Bernard was doing And I said, this was maybe almost 10 years ago. I said, if you're successful, they're going to get you. All right, he was successful, and they got him. The FBI uh, was after him, and at the moment, the judge has not sentenced him because the judge, I think the reason is that the judge... Knows he's not guilty of anything, but he's constrained by uh, government uh, uh, authorities and uh, to uh, not to let Bernard off scot free. And Doug pleaded guilty. I, oh, I, when I uh, knew him first, it was maybe 10 or 15 years ago. And I heard what he was doing, and I said, if you're successful, they're going to get you. Well, the Secret Service is the one that got him. And I found out just not too long ago that these regulatory agencies compete with each other to see who's going to get the most total dollar value in their raids on uh, um, unsuspecting people who think they're doing something legal. Um, Well, with that observation, though, I want to get to the clearinghouse system. Uh, The clearinghouse system started just before the Civil War. Of course, nobody knew there was necessarily going to be a Civil War. But um, there were bank panics occasionally, and... Uh, the primary um, uh, picture of the commercial banking system at that at that time and after the Civil War was too many, too small banks. That is, there was a plethora of banks, all of a less than optimal economic size. Um, two things contributed to that. One was the Absence of branch banking that was prohibited, both by the federal government and the states, and the other was the development during the Civil War of national banking and national banknote currency to uh, to go along with it, uh, so that um, after uh, after the Civil War and partly during it. Um, The uh, Congress passed a law saying that uh, any state bank that issued currency would have to pay a 10% tax on it. And also, if anybody else exchanged it, he would have to pay a 10% tax. Um, So there there were an awful lot of banks. Oh, the, the commercial banks treated that prohibition, by developing checkbook currency. So you can imagine uh, how large some of the checks were, maybe 47 cents. Now, with all those banks and with all those checks, there had to be some sort of economic means of clearing one bank's checks against another. And that's where the Clearinghouse Association came in. The banks themselves developed the clearinghouses as a, um, an economic uh, organization to further uh, the clearing of checks. These began to appear first in New York City, of course, and then in other cities, but they were um, uh, strict, straightforward clearing arrangements. I won't go into all the details; that's too boring. Uh, uh, clearing checks is about like watching grass grow, and uh, but then something exciting started to happen. Banks kept. Reserves in the clearinghouse, house, dollar for dollar, uh, um, the clearing house would issue clearing house certificates uh, for the banks who had to clear s- their balances with some uh, some distant uh, bank in another city, and then another thing that happened. Was that uh, the clearinghouse managers could see that some banks had surplus uh, balances, and then they found out uh, that some of the some of the other banks had deficient balances because they had overextended their loan portfolios. So the clearinghouse managers arranged for the surplus banks to uh, make loans to the deficient banks at a penalty rate of 6% per year, which was penalty in those days when there was no inflation. And um, uh, so we had the clearinghouses beginning to act like banks, uh, but they weren't fractional reserve. But along comes a panic uh, uh maybe the panic of eighteen seventy-three and the clearinghouses agree to make loans that have nothing to do with uh, the balance just the balances they have. So they um they issued clearinghouse loan certificates to uh to uh banks that had sound paper, meaning uh, good loans that would be paid off in a short period of time, so-called real bills, uh, 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 which were common with banks at that time. Good, sound loans uh, that the production of commodities and services would pay off for the banks. So the uh, uh, so we had the development of clearinghouse. Certificates and then clearinghouse loan certificates. Uh, the, but the clearinghouses by that time uh, had become less than 100% reserve institutions. And the fact that they did manifested itself in the panics of 1893 and 1907. And as the clearinghouse system ex- extended, Uh, more and more cities uh, got clearinghouses so they could issue clearinghouse loan certificates. And I I can't go into all the details, but by the time things got really uh, well-developed, clearinghouse loan certificates were uh, in the vicinity of uh, 50 cents, some of them. The the uh the the uh, the notes would say payable only at the clearinghouse. But the average guy looking at it for the note would see payable, oh, it's okay. Uh I'll get I'll get my uh silver or gold or United States notes some other times, but it's payable at the clearinghouse, so it's all okay. Well and the banker who uh accepted the note only payable at the clearing house would uh would think the same thing uh he knew that the loans the clearing house made were on uh, uh okay um on the basis of good sound commercial paper so here's a clearing house system expanding credit and money Clearinghouse currency, it's all market-directed. It's all individuals acting in thousands of ways with each other, and it works. That's the main thing about the clearinghouse system. All of this market activity uh, resulted in, uh, in, in corrections to the restrictive banking laws that made the system tolerable. And everything about it was private. Uh, It was uh, all market directed. It was a perfect example of spontaneous order in banking. And if you don't know what spontaneous order is, you haven't lived. (laughs) Um, unlike the central bank that took its place five years later, the clearinghouse system, in tandem with the gold standard, which was also operating uh, under spontaneous order, although each government had to specify the amount of gold in in terms of uh, its unit of account, um, no one, um the clearinghouse system could not initiate any inflation. No one ever imagined the possibility, because the incentive put, that put the clearinghouse machinery in motion only occurred when the demand for money, defined by rising interest rates and liquidity shortfalls, manifested itself in markets. By way of contrast with the Federal Reserve Central Bank that came into existence in 1913, which I treat here in the paper earlier, and also in both my books, um, uh, and which has enjoyed an expanding license of control over the monetary system ever since, all the clearinghouse money creating activities resulted in no losses due to defaults on the loans that created them. No losses from price level inflation. One of the uh, one of the clearinghouse people, uh, one of the people reviewing the episode noted that the gold standard had uh, between 1896 and 1910 uh, or 1905 had actually created an inflation of t- 2% per year. Well, uh, that's the, the inflation the current Federal Reserve is planning. Now, how... Uh, uh, how can a central bank fail if it plans inflation when, uh, when that's what it's naturally going to do? A central bank has control over the quantity of money, and that's all. And the only thing it can, it can actually control is the price level. And there could have there would have been no uh QE one, two, three, or four if the clearinghouse system were still uh, in uh, in effect and no personalities issuing statements like irrational exuberance uh uh and actually uh, and no, this is the last point I want to make no central bank Treasury co- collaboration to expand the government's fiscal footprint was possible. The front door of the Treasury could not become the back door of the central bank. And ladies and gentlemen, when that happens, and it's happened, you've got
0: trouble. <laughs> <laughs> That comes from a man who's seen it all. <laughs> One more vignette about Doug Jackson and eGold. When the Fed shut him down, they froze a lot of the eGold accounts. And a few Cato donors had donated gold, eGold to Cato, which got frozen in an account. Well, Doug Jackson is an honorable man, and he's been going around and helping people. and unf- They now unf- have unfrozen the accounts. So... Um, Cato's has a, just a few thousand dollars in e-gold, and I was thinking that perhaps because of the big price rise, we might have actually made out here a little bit because of uh, having our, our, our gold frozen. Um, our next speaker, Scott Sommer, and he has his solution uh, to what we do about the existing Fed and our monetary management. Scott.
4: Thank you, Richard, and uh, thanks to Jim Dorn for inviting me today. Um, I'm going to focus really mostly on just one aspect of my paper, which is why nominal GDP is so important and what it tells us about the last uh, five years or so. Make sure I'm doing this right. So um, this is an idea that's sort of traditionally been associated with people on the right. And I realized this morning, I forgot to mention Bill Niskanen, former chairman of Cato, who's also a fan of nominal GDP targeting. But recently, more interest has been on the the left or center left, um, and that raises some interesting questions of why why that has occurred. Um, It's, in fact, now seen as an inflationist policy by by some on the right. Um, So I'm going to focus on a different interpretation of what's been going on, um, and I would argue that Uh, A lot of people on the right have sort of misinterpreted the last five years. Um, It's interesting, when I listened to uh, Charles Posser's talk this morning, I agreed with virtually everything he said. With the one exception, I would favor targeting nominal GDP-level targeting rather than price-level targeting. Um, But even that may overstate our differences because um, I'm going to argue that monetary policy has been much too contractionary over the last five years. And I would still believe that if I was convinced that the Fed should not target nominal GDP, but instead should focus on 2% inflation like a laser. I would still argue that monetary policy has been too tight. So this is obviously a contrarian view. Um, I'll start off with this quote. Um, Tell me, uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein once asked a friend, why do people always say it was natural for man to assume that the sun went around the earth rather than that the earth was rotating his friend replied, well, obviously, because it just looks as though the sun is going around the earth. And Wittgenstein responded, well, what would it have looked like if it had looked as though the earth was rotating? <laughs> and I like that quote. It, so I'm going to sort of do like, what would the last five years look like if the recession had not been caused by a financial crisis, but by tight money that caused nominal GDP in 2009 to fall at the sharpest rate since 1938? Um, Oops, I'm not keeping track of the slides. Uh, Let me put this away. Okay, so um, that was the quote. Here's the uh, real GDP um, for, these are monthly estimates from macroeconomic advisors, and you can see the big drop was really June to December of 2008. That's the six-month period I'm going to focus on for the next few minutes. Real GDP fell sharply. Nominal GDP, exactly the same thing, fell sharply. Uh, over that six month period. Now, one argument I get is that, well, how can you say monetary policy was contractionary? Because, you know, it's obviously expansionary, interest rates were cut almost to zero, and so on. Let's take the number one textbook in monetary economics, written by a former Fed official, Frederick Michigan. And these are three key principles he focuses on. One, you should not associate easing and tightening of monetary policy with interest rates. Uh, let me jump ahead to three. Monetary policy can be highly effective even when interest rates are near zero. Well, I got into blogging in 2009 because I found that almost all economists were ignoring these ideas that we've been teaching our students for years. They were assuming interest rates indicated easy money and they were assuming monetary policy was out of ammunition. Now, what Mishkin suggests instead is that we look at other asset prices to really see what's going on in terms of the stance of monetary policy. I'll argue that all, virtually all other asset prices were signaling extremely contractionary policy in late 08. One other quote. First, um, here's Milton Friedman talking about how low interest rates are actually a sign that money has been tight, and he uses the Japanese situation. This is a quote from late 1997. Um, in high interest rates, often that money has been easy, citing the 1970s. Apparently, old fallacies never die. So he was also surprised that the profession was automatically assuming that money was easy in Japan just because interest rates were near zero. Uh, Let's look at other asset prices. So real interest rates. Some people say that's a better measure. Well, if you look at a five-year Treasury bond, real interest rates soared in the second half of 2008 from a little over half a percent to over 4%. Huge increase. That would indicate tight money. Commodity prices fell more than in half in late 2008. The value of the dollar went up 15% in trade weighted terms, which is really unusual in the teeth of a financial crisis. This is what makes it different from the typical Rogoff and Reinhardt type study of financial crises. Most of those currencies collapsed in the teeth of the crisis. Our dollar was strengthening, again an indication of tight money stock prices crashed. Commercial real estate prices that had been strong in the initial subprime decline started falling in the second half of 2009 when the economy weakened. Residential real estate prices in areas not affected by the subprime bubble like Texas started declining when nominal GDP fell in late 2008. Tip spreads which show inflation expectations fell very sharply. So all the other asset markets were indicating that Money was actually contractionary. Only short-term nominal interest rates looked expansionary. Um, Here's Ben Bernanke. So he's saying that money growth is not a reliable indicator. Um, Interest rates are not a reliable indicator. Let's remember in the 1930s, we had near zero interest rates, and we had QE done by Herbert Hoover. And yet Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz, I think, convinced the profession that money was actually tight during that period. Bernanke says, ultimately, you have to look at macro indicators such as nominal GDP growth and inflation. Now, I prefer nominal GDP growth because inflation can be affected either by supply or demand shocks, and their implications for the economy are radically different. Uh, But even if you, say, average these two, you have over the last five years, by Ben Bernanke's own criterion, the tightest monetary policy since Herbert Hoover was president. That's not my criterion. That's Ben Bernanke's. And yet Ben Bernanke today says money is extraordinarily accommodative. So there's been this, from my perception, sort of a mass amnesia about what we've been teaching our students about thinking about the stance of monetary policy and how we've actually interpreted this crisis over the last five years. Um, Long-term real interest rates are an interesting topic. Now they've fallen sharply, but over a 30-year trend, this is widely interpreted as more and more easy money, more and more expansionary money as the rates get lower, and yet inflation and nominal GDP growth have been on a downward trend over this 30-year period. If money really was getting easier, we would have had faster nominal GDP growth and higher inflation, not lower. Um, Some people say, well, the rates are artificially held down because so much Treasury debt is bought by the Fed. Um, This graph, which I borrowed from David Beckworth, shows that the blue area is the Treasuries purchased by the Fed. Yes, it's gone up a lot in percentage terms, but the total amount of debt outstanding has soared so much in recent years with an unwise reliance on fiscal stimulus that we've actually have more debt held by the public than before. So it's not just Fed purchases that explain low rates. Some people say, no, it's not the fall in nominal GDP. It's sort of a structural thing. We, we built way too much housing. We had a bubble and then inevitably it crashed and, and now we're paying the price. Well, first of all, bubbles are not nearly as obvious as you might assume. If you notice these five English-speaking countries here, uh, this is the United States. We had the price increase. Prices went back down. That's what people focus on. But there's four others here, Canada, Australia, Britain, and New Zealand. Prices went up just like the United States and didn't crash. So what goes up does not necessarily go down in asset markets. But more importantly, the... If you look at the actual data, the housing crash was not the cause of high unemployment. Between January 06 and April of 08, more than 70 roughly 70% of the decline in housing construction occurred. So by April 08, most of the decline was already over. What happened to unemployment during that 27 month period? Went from 4.7 to 4.9. Then in late 08, when nominal GDP crashes, that's when we lose jobs all across the economy, housing, commercial real estate, manufacturing services, exports, everything. And that's when unemployment rates soars to 10%. It's nominal GDP, not any particular sector that explains big business cycle swings. The financial crisis itself. Now here, um, certainly there was a crisis before nominal GDP started falling. There's no question about it. But if you look at IMF estimates of losses to the banking system, they were under a trillion as of April 2008. And then the, the blue lines there and the pink shows falling forecasts of inflation and real GDP growth. I use those as a sort of a proxy for nominal GDP forecasts. As those fell sharply in the second half of 2008, asset prices plummeted and highly leveraged investment banks like Lehman Brothers got into a lot of trouble. So I'm not denying we didn't already have a severe financial crisis but the fall in nominal GDP made it much worse. And that's really no surprise because every time there's a sharp decline in nominal GDP, whether it be America in the early 30s, Argentina and around the end of the 90s, America in Europe around 2008 and 9, you tend to get financial crises or you get intensification of crises because what happens is the resources available to pay nominal debts are coming from nominal income. So it's not inflation that matters, it's not real GDP, it's nominal GDP that tells you the resources available to repay nominal debts. That's the best indicator of financial crises. Unemployment, same thing. If you look at the ratio of the wage rate, don't look at the real wage rate. It's the wage rate divided by nominal GDP that's the best indicator of fluctuations in unemployment. The uh, blue line, is the ratio of wages to nominal GDP. So as nominal GDP plunged, that ratio increased sharply. There was simply less nominal GDP to pay workers. You had a huge jump in unemployment, which is the red line. Then in recent years, wage growth has slowed a lot. Nominal GDP growth has picked up some. So that blue line is starting to come back, and the unemployment rate is slowly tracking back. But of course, the nominal GDP growth has been much slower than during a normal recovery. Um, it's even worse in Europe. So if you think the, the growth here is slow, I mentioned the slowest over the last five years since Herbert Hoover. In Europe, the ECB explicitly tightened monetary policy sharply in 2008, I'm sorry, 2011. And at that time, the unemployment rates in Europe and the U.S. were about the same. After that, they sharply diverged. Europe had a double dip recession caused by a sharp drop in nominal GDP growth. In the U.S., we continued to plug along with a slow recovery. Our unemployment rate fell from 10 to 7.3. Theirs went up to 12.2. Very different monetary policies. By the way, fiscal austerity does not explain Europe. We've had roughly the same amount of fiscal austerity in the last few years as Europe. It's monetary policy that's different that explains the double-dip recession. Uh, So my proposal is to stabilize the growth rate of nominal GDP, do something called level targeting. You pick a, a path that you'd like nominal GDP to grow. If it deviates, you promise to come back to that path. And that's very important in reducing central bank discretion. As long as you don't force them to come back to the path, they can simply do what the Bank of Japan has been doing for 20 years. Oh, we missed on stable prices this year, we'll do better next year. And say that over and over and over again. So level targeting puts a lot, more, puts a lot less discretion in the hands of central bankers. But that sort of policy would provide more labor market stability, provide more uh, credit market stability, would certainly not eliminate bubbles and crises and so on. But it would moderate them because instability in nominal GDP is a major cause of financial instability. Um, Statist policies thrive after nominal GDP falls sharply. So we had in the early 30s. A big fall in nominal GDP. People wrongly blamed capitalism instead of bad monetary policy, and we had this swing towards statism. Same thing happened in Argentina. The policies in the '90s were gradually making Argentina a little less statist, but when they got into a deflationary uh, depression, free-market policies were wrongly discredited, and um, as a result, they swung back towards statism. How much time? So And also, it's easier to say no to bailouts. Like if you're trying to argue the government shouldn't bail out General Motors and Chrysler and so on, it's very hard for a free market economist to make that argument in a period of high unemployment. You can talk about creative destruction, but people will say, where will the workers get jobs elsewhere? If you have nominal GDP targeting, anyone arguing for bailing out General Motors has to be aware that given a nominal GDP target, the extra revenue spent on GM cars will come out of spending on other companies' cars because the total revenue is being targeted by the central bank. So it's a very free market-friendly policy. Um, I guess I'm out of time, so I won't go into this. I I don't think alternatives like gold standard will work in this area, Um, and I have some doubts. I think free banking can work, but only if attached to... uh, Nominal GDP targeting, Bill Wolsey has done a a paper doing that, Um, and so there we are. Okay, thank you. Thank you.
0: We have about 15 minutes for questions, but I'm also going to allow questions from the other panelists who uh, may have something for Scott, if uh, any of them also want to ask questions. Now, if you can put up your hands... It's hard to see. Let's see. It's a question for Professor Sumner. Don't you have both a timing and a causality problem with targeting nominal GDP? Because you don't actually know what GDP is until after the quarter end. You've got forecasts, but that's not the same thing. Whereas what you actually do know is that all the banks are going bust. So if you're sitting in September 2008, you've got only second quarter nominal GDP, which was presumably fairly reasonable. Uh, but what you've got is Lehman Brothers, AIG, God knows what, the financial system crashing in on you. And so by target, you can't actually target nominal GDP because you don't yet have the information. And furthermore, I would suggest that it's the banking system crashing that caused the decline in nominal GDP and not the other way around.
4: Okay, good question. So in terms of the causation, the nominal GDP crash occurred between June and December, and the financial crisis actually intensified about halfway through that crash. Um, So I strongly believe that the asset market crash was one of the reasons the financial crisis got much worse. But I mean, it's a good question about the the forecast problem. So I, I favor a policy called targeting the forecast, which is to set policy at a stance where you expect it to succeed in other words whatever your target whether it be two percent inflation or four percent nominal GDP growth you set policy so that you're forecasting the growth rate that you would like to happen now let's take the period you talked about two days after Lehman failed the Fed had a meeting they voted not to cut interest rates they kept them at two percent and the reasoning was there was an equal risk of recession and inflation Well, if you look backwards, yes, we'd had a lot of inflation over the previous 12 months. But the day of the meeting, the TIPS markets, which are a forecast of inflation, were showing 1.23% inflation over the next five years. So the Fed, if they'd been paying attention to a target-the-forecast approach, it would actually cut rates sharply because both inflation and unemployment were likely to come in in the wrong direction in 2009. And... uh, What the Fed was doing was sort of a a backward approach of looking back at past data. And and you're right, if they do that, they're going to miss these sharp declines like late 2008. But I also want to emphasize the level targeting aspect. So if you promise to come back to the trend line later, that's going to make asset prices much more stable during these periods of uncertainty. Because asset markets will know that if there's this short-term six-month problem the Fed can't do anything about, Two or three years down the road, we'll get back to that trend line, and stock prices and bond prices and commercial real estate prices will reflect those expectations. They won't crash as much, and that will make the financial crisis itself less severe. It won't eliminate it, but it'll make it less severe, I believe. Yeah. Okay.
0: Let's try to keep our both questions and our answers a bit shorter so we get more people in. <laughs> questions? So you trying to figure uh Louise?
1: So two quick questions also for
4: Professor Sumner. The one is, how do you see the central bank's lender of last resort function in this kind of um, system that you're, you know, suggesting? And then the other um, issue is, uh, and I've actually forgotten what I was going to ask, so I'll leave it at that. Thank you. (laughs) I don't really have strong views on that topic. Uh, I'm, I'm not a big fan of the Fed doing anything other than targeting nominal GDP, Perhaps it should have some role as a lender of last resort, but that's not my area of expertise.
0: Lady here in the center. Again, give your name and your affiliation as you ask a question, please.
2: Jillian Garcia. um, The Fed has been systematically overestimating, over-forecasting GDP for several years. So if we followed... um, Mr. Summers' suggestion, we would have excessively strict monetary policy.
4: I favor relying on market forecasts. You're right, the Fed has been overly optimistic, and uh, the markets have been much more accurate um, in their forecasts. Um, so I, I would rely on market forecasts. I have another paper um, out that talks about using nominal GDP futures markets. The Fed would create these futures markets. And these would be uh, sort of guardrails on policy, keeping them from deviating too far. So in late 2008, with these futures markets in existence, people like myself and others that saw they were off course could have profited from that, and those trades would have forced the Fed to nudge policy in a direction where nominal GDP was not expected to move dramatically off course.
0: Larry, do you want to comment on that or Dick? No. Okay.
4: Well, I'd just
3: like to say that... <laughs> There are lots of things the Fed can do that would be good. And a whole bunch of us over the years have spelled out those good things the Fed can do, including Milton Friedman and I don't know how many others. But the final remark is whatever good the Fed can do, it won't do because it's got other pressures on it. Starting with the political pressures, and and it cannot um, produce goods and services. It cannot uh, recommend to the administration that they should reduce taxes and regulations, which is where the real problem is today. Uh, so, uh, and furthermore, we have a, a free market example of central banking, with the clearinghouses, and that worked much, much better than any Federal Reserve System.
0: We have any questions for uh, either Larry or Dick before we get back to, I know everybody wants to focus on, on Scott, but we <laughs> try to diversify this a little bit. Gentleman in the center up here.
5: I didn't see any questions for those other two, so I had a question for Scott, if that's all
0: right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait a minute. Okay, make it short. <laughs>
5: uh, I'm a pretty serious student of, in, of inflation, pretty impressed with what the BLS does. However, you know, you're, you're active on the blogosphere, and, and you're probably aware that among the general public, among the newspapers, certainly among the blogosphere, The skepticism regarding the CPI is is huge, and 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 generally in in the idea that there's a lot more inflation around than than what the BLS publishes. Isn't isn't GDP ten times more complicated? And nominal GDP again, um, well, maybe less complicated than real GDP, but still, uh, nominal GDP just so complicated subject to interpretation and methodology and, and, uh, Okay. Report. I think we are at the essence of your question.
4: Well, they, they, they do need to improve it. And the Philadelphia fed is working right now on an improved uh, estimate, but in some ways, nominal GDP is actually much less uh, prone to bureaucratic discretion. Um, when you look at the uh, output of say Dell computer, it's pretty clear, you know, there's a certain nominal revenue from all their sales of computers and equipment and services. But if you ask what's happening in the price of Dell computers, we don't have any model for that, really, that's any good. It's Bureaucrats can decide whatever hedonic measures they want to use. It's subject to all sorts of discretion that is not there, in just looking at a simple concept of nominal revenue from sales of that company. So, yeah, I mean, sure, GDP does have problems, and some of that you resolve with you, you target the second revision, you target the forecast, because the initial... Numbers often revised, and there's some other issues, but I think those can be dealt with. Um, I don't trust inflation numbers. I'll give you a quick example. Um, Between mid-2008 and mid-2009, one of the greatest housing crashes in American history, the BLS shows housing costs rising even relative to the price of other goods. Housing costs were rising, and housing is 39% of the core CPI. Now, why did they have housing costs rising? Because they weren't looking at the price of houses. They were looking at something called rental equivalent, which isn't really a market price at all. It's people under existing rental contracts. So these numbers are very, very fishy and misleading. Uh, That is inflation numbers. I would just have the central bank ignore inflation, focus on nominal GDP. And I would recommend George Selgin's books on this. He's really done a good topic of showing how. A lot of the problems people associate with nominal inflation, like the spending, the creditor, debtor problems, and so on, are better proxied by nominal GDP. Larry. My question's for Larry. Um, Given what we know about bureaucratic inertia and, you know, uh, the way institutions sort of refuse to die even when they're not working, um, I think – it, we could probably predict that the Fed is is going to hang on in some way, shape, or form for a very long time. But I'm curious as to whether you think um, uh, this um, development of alternate kinds of money, competitive money in cyberspace and so forth, can actually flourish and create this competition, even with all the pressure on money laundering and all of that. Can it... Can, can the market outsmart all the regulators and it, to, to the point where eventually they're, they're uh, going to have to give in or it will, it will become a real uh, serious alternative?
2: Well, I, I agree with something uh, George Selgin said earlier, which is that there's a strong network effect. So the presence, just the first stages of competitors entering the market is not going to exercise that much discipline on the Fed just by itself. But it will have two benefits. It will sort of give the Fed something to compete against. Uh, It may help modify their behavior. I mean, we see this in other countries when people start to dollarize themselves. The central bank sometimes cleans up its act. And even if it doesn't clean up its act, and, of course, inflation is not a problem now, but will be soon. (laughs) Uh, it gives people an alternative, and it's important to have those alternatives up and running and ready in order for people to be able to protect their wealth from inflation.
0: let see. Um, we've got anybody on the right-hand side. Anybody over there yet? Yes, sir. Wait till, wait till you get the mic, please. Uh, one of the problems— Give us your name and affiliation.
4: Arthur Gandolfi. One of the problems that uh, the Fed has uh, encountered is the zero bound on interest rates. Is it generally the contention under the gold standard was that because the gold standard is a level constraint, that when expectations, when prices go down, expectation is for inflation then. The same would be under your nominal GDP standard. The level targeting, episode. The level target would, would help offset the, mm-hmm. ex, the, the bottom f- floor expectational problem is is that true and you and i wouldn't use interest rates as an instrument like the fed does i would have markets set interest rates and monetary base uh, with a nominal gdp futures so essentially the market would set these variables at the level where it expected you'd be on target for nominal gdp there's no zero bound for a nominal gdp futures price but the, that really just shows that the real problem with the zero bound is not the zero bound on interest rates. It's the Fed being uncomfortable with a certain size balance sheet. And that's where level targeting helps. You wouldn't have to do as much QE if you did level targeting as their current policy.
2: Uh, Could I just say, I think you've pointed to a very real virtue of the gold standard, which is that the strong anchor that it provides uh, creates these kind of virtuous expectations and there never was a zero lower bound problem under the classical gold standard.
0: Okay. Way in the back.
2: David Merkel, Olive blog. Um, to Dr. Sumner,
4: was monetary policy too loose 2001 through 2007? Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> uh. So, uh, some of my fellow market monetarists think it was, uh, I think in retrospect, it would have been better to have a tighter one, but I I would caution you that in my view, the housing bubble wasn't really primarily caused by, um, easy money. Uh, In in my view, the, and we saw the other countries there, they, they haven't crashed. We're on a 30 year downward trend in real interest rates and, the fact of the matter is that's going to make asset prices unusually high probably for decades to come. I don't know what's causing these low real interest rates, but as long as they're there, we're going to have more bubbles than before. Um, so I, I, I think it's a mistake to suggest that if the Fed had only had 5% nominal GDP growth in 04, 05, or 06, instead of 6.5%, that that would have made a decisive difference. You know, it would have helped. It would have made the bubble less big and the Ensuing crash, perhaps smaller, but I'm not going to pretend that this would have prevented the, the housing thing. I think it was a lot of moral hazard in our banking system that's really the main problem with our financial system, not monetary policy.
0: Okay, now, we're, we're running short of time, and we've had discrimination against two of our panelists, <laughs> or hard. maybe discrimination for one of our panelists, depending on whether or not you like to answer questions. So, first of all, do we have anybody who has a question, either for Dick or Larry, because I want to get those in. And it's, 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 with the lights, it's very hard to see. In the background. Okay, in the back.
3: This is a question for Professor Timberlake. Uh, regarding the clearinghouses, say, around the 1900 in New York, I've heard the argument uh, that the clearinghouses were somewhat exclusive, not just in terms of policing the solvency of the bank, but actually excluding some of the county banks, some of the rural banks from being able to participate in the clearinghouses, say, in New York City. So I wonder if you could respond to that sort of critique, whether that was common or not, and how the markets were adjusting to that. I couldn't
1: hear it. Um you want to come back down here a little bit and maybe restate it? Sure. Yeah. Sure. Okay.
3: My okay. question was regarding uh, the New York Clearing Houses around 1907. I've heard the argument made that they were exclusive, that they would exclude county banks, rural banks, from being able to participate in the clearinghouse system. I wonder if you could comment, was that the case, and how did the market uh, react to
1: that?
0: Hmm? Well,
3: I'm not sure I understand the question, but uh, uh, the market will not to just discriminate unwittingly. Um, um, I really didn't understand. Well,
0: with the, the houses in bigger cities like New York, now, out there in the more rural communities, oh, you really didn't have did that cause oh. a
3: problem. Oh, no, because uh, <laughs> the funny thing is that clearinghouse associations... Would come into play in towns that only had a couple of banks, where the the bank presidents could clear the checks over morning coffee, and in some places there was a there were clearinghouse currencies issued by a single bank where there was no clearinghouse, <laughs> but all of them uh, like Willacoochee, Georgia, uh, but all of them. Uh, uh, were aware of the fact that here was a, a delayed payment that was going to come so, very soon, within a few weeks or a few months. Uh, consequently, um, in the 1907 panic, uh, the clearinghouse uh, practice went much further and and uh, covered a lot more ground and did its job much more effectively. Uh, Even though some of the clearing houses were in quotes because they weren't so much clearing houses as issuers of currency. It was almost like free banking, wasn't it, Larry? (laughs) (laughs) Larry and I once discussed this uh, and uh, he convinced me that free banking was the way to go and that the clearinghouse is... I'll the agree more, with whatever you said. Would, would, <laughs> <laughs> okay.
0: Well, I'm going to end it at that point because we're out of time.